Steph uh, used to lead this church when it was New Gen Stenabosch, probably 10 years ago, longer, less, more, 10, possibly. Um, so yeah, he's just got rich history here. He's one of the fathers that speaks into this church. For me personally, he was a mentor for me in um, some darker times. Um, so I really, really appreciate him. Uh, can I pray for you? Cool. Father God, we thank you for Steph. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, King, that you've called him. Uh, you've called him out to be a father um, in your church and in your people. We thank you for the relationship that we have as One Hope to Steph and to Nugen. We pray that you'd continue to grow that. I pray that as he speaks to us this morning, that you'd soften our hearts, ready our minds. Father, as he speaks on missions, may you freshly challenge and encourage us um, to carry the gospel with conviction and courage. And we pray that you'd speak, to, speak through him, Father God. And yeah, we just thank you for the blessing of your word and, and the ability that we have to sit under it. Your name, Amen. Amen. Thanks, Catfish. Uh, it's um, it's a joy to be with you. Um, God can send us to Zimbabwe. He can put us in a car for twenty hours, travel through the night. We can go sleep on um, mud floors, rough and tough times. But don't let God come and touch our coffee. How are you guys going to survive this morning? Uh, I know it's a holy grail. I don't always understand it. I don't drink coffee. I don't get it. Um, I think coffee is weakness. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so uh, let me start again. That was probably not the best way to start. Okay, I'll try again. Well, a very good morning, all you lovely people. There we go. Um, as you know, my name is Steph. This is my wonderful wife, Kaz. And uh, we've got three little kids running around here this morning. Uh, if they do well and behave, then they take after their father. If not, they take after their mother. And it's about this point where I come and uh, I just set the platform today and say that, um, Kaz, you are the goat. You are. You are. You're the greatest of all time, really. And um, we have this little joke that, or this conversation, you know, what would you do if, you know, one, if I died or if she died and, you know, there was a number two that had to come along and seriously, it gets me to a point thinking that I really don't want that to happen and that you are amazing and wonderful. I just have to set that platform this morning as we get going with my message. And so my message is under the umbrella theme of Church on Mission and my title of my message today is The Mission of Jesus. And so, what do you think the mission of Jesus is slash was? Think about it. Have a phrase, a sentence ready for when I ask you. Okay. Think about it. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Okay, you got it. Excellent, good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, what if I told you that Jesus didn't come to save you from your sins? You see, when we talk about the mission of Jesus, I think it is fundamentally important because at its worst, the mission of Jesus comes and informs the mission of the church, and at best, the mission of Jesus is actually the mission of the church. 
And so it would be fundamentally important for us to have this right and correct, to understand what the mission of Jesus is. And so, <clears throat> and so in coming and working through this this morning, I want to talk about uh, the, the book Song of Songs, which has so many different references to so many wonderful things. Uh, and I was reading through it recently, and I came across the term goats of Gilead, referring to the ladies' hair. And just how these goats were the, the most sought-after goats because of the hair that these goats had. And so when he's talking about this woman's hair being like the goats of Gilead, he was talking about her hair being amazing and wonderful. And so I've got to call him Kaz's hair, the goats of Gilead. And so this morning the goats are looking amazing, Kaz. Well done. And so um, recently we, we went on a trip to the UK and Kaz took her hair straightener with her and um, unfortunately we forgot the adapter and so, and so the goats didn't have the hair straightener for that time. And the, point, the only point I want to make is that, is that that hair straightener was designed to work off a specific kind of plug and because it was taken out of that context into another where you couldn't plug it in, it was less than useful. It wasn't performing to the potential that it was created to. And, and I feel like when we talk about mission, we can come and do this to mission. In the context of you guys doing mission month and going on mission and being on mission, I think we can come and take mission out of the context of what it was always designed to be worked through. And so my scripture for today is the quintessential scripture on mission. It's the one that we preach on again and again. You know it, not only what I'm going to be preaching on, but you also know it off by heart. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, and most of you know this part, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I guess this is the part that we quote and maybe is one of the most quoted scriptures. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe <clears throat> all that I have commanded, all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this is something of the quintessential scripture. I wouldn't be surprised that in the next couple of weeks, as you've got a couple of incoming calls, as you've got other people coming and talking into this thing of mission and being on mission, that you don't get a repeat of the scripture. And, and I'm concerned that we would come and we would take this passage of scripture and just like that hair straightener, take it out of the context that it was designed to operate in and try and wield it in a less than useful way, in a less than what God intended way for it. And so with my time today, I want to highlight what the mission of Jesus is, and I want to come and use that, extend that into the context of the mission of the church, the mission of us. So can we pray? Heavenly Father God, I want to come before you this morning and just pray that you would go before me. In every word I say, I pray that you would, through your Spirit, come 
and open the way and the path, that these would not simply be my words, but Lord, that they would be catalyzed through your power, through you, to come and to land in a way that they would come and transform us and change us and draw us closer to you, Jesus Christ, and closer to your purposes that you have for us. And I I pray that through this you would come and cause whatever flame is burning in us, Lord God, if if it's a tiny little candle flame to cause that to grow bigger if it's a if it's a fire to turn it into a bonfire but that you would come and spur us on in the mission that you have for us today in jesus mighty name i pray amen amen and so most of us would probably have memorized matthew 28 18 most of us would know it as the great commission Uh, you've heard several preachers on it um but I fear that we have, by and large, misinterpreted it. Um, and it's a hard one to work through because I, I don't want to come and unpack it verse by verse. I want to come and help us understand the context that Matthew 28, 16 to 20 is couched into. You see, the context that you couch these couple of verses into will determine how you approach mission. And the degree to which we get the context wrong will be the degree to which we get the mission wrong. And, um, and it's easy. It's easy to get stuff mixed up. It's easy to forget the adapter and all of a sudden you've got this hair straightener that's good for a paperweight. And we do it all the time, don't we? Matthew, t- sorry, Romans 8.28. What's that? What, what is it again? Does anyone remember? Say it again. God works all things for the good. And we are, oh, so often do we come and we take that out of context because we hear that and we say God works all things for the good. God works all things for the good. What's the broader context of those who love him and are called to according to his purposes? And so he doesn't come and work all things for the good. It's in the context of those who love him and his purposes. Or the other one is Matthew 8, I think it's 8, 18, where two or more gathered in my name, so there I am too. We use that as a context to come and to say, well, that's what church is. Church is where there are two or three gathered, then we have God's presence there, and God's presence then comes and endorses that as the church. And it just isn't the case because the context of that scripture is actually in conflict. When there are people in conflict and two or, th- two or three come and gather together in my name to come and resolve that conflict, I am then there with them. And so, in the context of the Great Commission, how do we come and we understand this? Well, we need to catch it into the book of Matthew. And so the book of Matthew is, of course, the first of four Gospels. It's considered the most Jewish of all the Gospels. I don't know if you know that. It was written by a Jew to a very Jewish audience. And so... Of all the Gospels, it's the one that is most closely linked to the Old Testament. Of all the Gospels, that has the most Old Testament prophetic references. Nearly double the, the book that comes in second, namely Mark. And this is significant because the Jews in those days relied heavily on tracking the future that they were walking, stepping into by looking into the prophetic promises of the past. They placed a premium on the prophetic. And so one of these golden prophetic words was the promise of an eternal kingdom in the line of David, King David. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. 
is this very promise given to David where God comes and says to King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so like milk from their mother's breasts, little babies grew up on the promise of the kingdom. Like little boys growing up playing cops and robbers, little Jewish boys would grow up, play fighting the Romans. Like our little girls grow up dreaming of Disney princesses, every Jewish girl would grow up dreaming of princesses in the palace in Jerusalem. And like our young men would come and hang around a fireplace and listen to the stories of older men of bravado and adventure, so too young men would come and sit by the fire of the older men and listen to the stories of the kingdom that would come and what they would do to see that happen. And like the people of Ukraine who are currently fighting for their country, the Jews grew up, men, women, old men, young men, grew up knowing that it might be them that needs to come and fight for their country to take it back from the Romans. And so you see the Jewish kingdom It wasn't a matter of if, just a matter of when. It was a prophetic promise that they had been given. It wasn't just a dream. It was rooted in the prophetic. And it wasn't an unlikely hope like a lottery ticket. Maybe I could win. It was as real as God's people crossing through the Red Sea. It was as real as God bringing fire down from the heavens above to come and light the wet wood of Elijah as he faced the prophets of Baal. It was as real as God raising and causing an axe head to float on the water for Elisha. Every Jewish man, woman, and child was waiting, expecting, longing for this kingdom. And it's worth saying here that it was a very physical kingdom with a very real king and a very real enemy, namely the Romans, and a very geographical extent. The promised land that God had promised to the people of Israel with the capital, namely Jerusalem, in which all of Israel's enemies would be defeated, namely the Romans, which excited everyone, all the Jews, because they despised the Romans. They rejected Caesar as king, and they toiled and suffered under the persecution of Roman taxes and occupation. And so it's into this context that Matthew, a Jew, writes to Jews. And as we begin to look at the book of Matthew, you know what you begin to see as the theme, the golden thread, the meta-narrative of the book of Matthew. The central idea running through the book is this idea of kingdom. And related to this is the theme, the kingdom of heaven. And so the word kingdom appears 44 times in the book of Matthew. The phrase kingdom of heaven is 33 of those 44. The first occurrence of the word kingdom is the phrase kingdom of heaven. And it's in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2, quoting John the Baptist, where he comes and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The next we see is Jesus. After being tempted 40 days in the wilderness, he kicks off his ministry. And what are the words that he kicks his ministry off with? It's, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the Beatitudes, we see it pop up again and again with phrases like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And even in teaching his disciples to pray, we see it there, your kingdom come. And so Jesus often said things with the phrase or the word kingdom in, like Matthew 7, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And when he sends his disciples out, what does he send them out to go and do? To go and proclaim, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what about the parables? Again and again and again, we see him start a parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. And I can go on and on and on, but let me land it in Matthew 24, where he comes and he makes this reference. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And I want to come and land it here because he lands it with the phrase of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel, I think we would know, is the good news. And we know it as the good news of Jesus Christ, but the good news of Jesus Christ is also the gospel of the kingdom. And so when we ask the question, what is the context that we should come and catch Matthew 28, 16 to 20, this famous quintessential scripture about mission, where do we come and catch it into? Well, we come and we catch it into the context of the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so what was the mission of Jesus? I think if we had to come and look at what Matthew was arguing for, the context that he's couching this in and, and fighting for, it's in the context of kingdom. It's in the context that the mission of Jesus was to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. And I really, really believe that the best way to understand Matthew 28 and the book of Matthew and all the Gospels and in fact all of Scripture and even the mission of Jesus in the, is in the context of kingdom. And so, I think we need to have a theology of kingdom. In order to do mission well and to go on mission well and to be on mission, I think we need a kingdom theology. And so, I don't have the time to do justice to this and I'm going to do a quick overview of how we grapple for a, a kingdom theology in maybe five minutes that deserves probably a whole series. And so, and so in the beginning, God comes and creates Adam, Adam and Eve, right? He comes and he gives them authority. He gives them dominion. He gives them rulership. And so he creates Adam and Eve as his image bearers. And it's not simply that, that they were to look like God. It was that they were to be like God, an image bearer a little version of God. And so God ruled over all existence. And so he comes and he gives authority and rulership to Adam and Eve. And God has a kingdom over which he rules, which is the entire universe seen and unseen from one side to the other. And he comes and he says to Adam and Eve, for you to be appropriate image bearers of me, let me give you a kingdom to come and rule over on behalf of me as an extension and as an image bearer of me, that you would come and rule as I rule, you will come and rule here. Let me give you this little blue and green globe that you will come and rule. 
And so effectively, earth is the kingdom that's gifted to Adam and Eve. And he says to them, don't eat the fruit, right? Because you will surely die. And so the devil disguised as a serpent comes, convinces them to eat the fruit. And in that moment, Adam and Eve are not so much guilty of eating the fruit as they are of disobeying God and obeying the serpent. And what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6 is that you are a slave unto the one whom you obey, either a son unto righteousness or a slave unto the devil himself. And so in this moment, Adam and Eve, and for our sake, the rest of humanity, come and are enslaved to sin, and more particularly, to Satan. We become the possessions of Satan, and what we have becomes his. And so the kingdom of earth is no longer ours as much as it is Satan's. And so we forfeit that. Adam and Eve forfeit that in the moment when they came and chose to listen to the serpent, Satan, rather than to come and obey God. And so obviously this is a problem for God, and God can come and fix it like that. He can, he can burn everything out, destroy it, and begin from scratch. But that would come and show him to be unjust and unloving especially in the context of him coming and putting the parameters in place. If you come and do this, there's this jurisprudence of God's authority that needs to be seen through. And so he can come and destroy everything or he can find a way to patiently defeat Satan and take back the kingdom. And so God, of course, chooses the latter. And so because sin enters the world through a man, atonement for sin needs to be worked through by a man. And so Jesus, the Son of God, is incarnated into the frail frame of humanity as a man. And then Jesus lives a holy, innocent life as a man, never once deviating from God's will as a man, consistently obeying God and resisting the devil as a man, eventually dying upon a cross as a man. And in that moment, he spills his blood to come and fix the wrong. At which point, Satan presides over the death of an innocent man. On his watch, he's now guilty of murder. And, and unlike every other death, he didn't have authority over this death, and he becomes guilty, and he forfeits the kingdom of earth back to Jesus, back to God. And so Jesus is raised to life again, and he's not only given authority in heaven and on earth, but he's also given authority to forgive sins. And so I know there might be lots of questions bubbling about here, about all of this. And like I said, we don't have time to jump into that. I want you to understand that there is a kingdom that God gave to Adam and Eve. And Jesus comes to take back that kingdom. That's the point I want to make. Don't get distracted by other elements here. Jesus comes to take back a kingdom that was lost through Adam and Eve. And so earlier I made the statement, which some of you are still recoiling from, that Jesus didn't come to save us from our sins. And I... <laughs> I'm going to get to that in a second, but let me come and just say that last year was my 40th, and um, I know, I look like I'm 32 or something like that. I actually grow this beard for the grade to come out, so people think I'm a little older than I am. Uh, and so last year was my 40th, and I never used to be like this, but 
over time I've become more like this, where birthdays have become a big thing. And so, and so I kind of had expectations around this birthday and certain things. And, um, and let me just say, it was a phenomenal, amazing birthday. <laughs> but inside of you, you have, and you build up certain expectations. And so there was a, a moment where something happened and I think Kaz was having a conversation with someone at work, and I was like, I wonder if she's trying to arrange some leave for me. She's probably wanting to take me away. Maybe Kruger? That would be amazing. I really want to go to Kruger. That would be phenomenal. I can't wait for it. I hope she goes to that camp and picks that camp. And before you know it, I'm like way down this thing. And, and it didn't happen. But that wasn't because of her. It was because of me. These unsanctioned expectations and desires that I like get the better of myself. And here I'm thinking of this trip. What a savage. And, and the truth is, the truth is, is Kaz does this all the time. <laughs> you know, I forget, it's round about her birthday. I forget to pay rates and taxes for three months. I go and pay it. It's a big amount. She sees it goes off on the card and she's like, he oh, must be buying a trip or a big gift for me, you know, and, and she starts thinking like that, and, and I, we might be our own worst enemies, but, but we got these grandiose ideas about, like, what we want and what we deserve, and I've got it, she's got it, and you know what? You've got it. We've all got it. Some to bigger degrees than others, and, and, and we're living in a very, very dangerous generation and culture about you do you, I'll do myself. It's a selfie generation. It's about loading up the best version of yourself online. It's a very self-absorbed generation, perhaps more than any other. And it's a very petulant generation. And I'm including myself in that. And you know who the poster boys for this are? And I'm sorry if I'm going to offend you, but it's people like Vladimir Putin. He's just a big baby going, throwing his toys out the cot because he wants a bigger sandpit. I hope he doesn't hear that and come and find me. <laughs> and there are others that I can think of, other politicians in America that I won't say because you, you feel you, know, you need to defend him or something. Whoever it might be, but, but it's ripe within the world around us. And it's problematic because we come and we make it about me, about myself. And the problem with the gospel that says Jesus came to save me from my sins as it makes it about me and not about his kingdom. And that is a problem. Jesus didn't come to save us from our sins as much as he came to establish his kingdom and as a beautiful byproduct of that we are saved from our sins. But lo and behold, if we come and make that the center purpose of Jesus, that we come and elevate ourselves to a point of importance where we come and we build our kingdom and not the kingdom of Jesus, not the kingdom of heaven. And so I wrote something about seven years ago and I stumbled upon it the other day. And rather than try and preach it, I'm just going to read it. And so bear with me, it's a little bit long. And I hope you're going to get the point of what I'm saying here. But it goes like this. The church of today has reduced the gospel to one dark and dreary Friday 2,000 odd years ago. 
But the gospel is so much more than Good Friday. The gospel is so much more than the cross and the death and the blood of Jesus. The gospel is so much more than our personal salvation and being right with God. And so this may sound irreverent and blasphemous to you, and I hope that if it does, your indignation may illustrate how far we have slipped. You see, the gospel, the true gospel of God, has been hijacked. A well-meaning but blissfully ignorant church has progressively, over the last couple of centuries, reduced the true gospel of God to a mere potion of personal salvation and sin management. As Scott McKnight says, what has happened is that we have created a salvation culture and mistakenly assumed it as a gospel culture. When we reduce the gospel to personal salvation, we unwittingly place man in the center of the story. With man in the middle, middle, the expectation is that God should come and orbit around him, catering to his every need, dispensing blessings like a divine vending machine, like an objectified buxom barmaid or a bleary-eyed butler ticking off a to-do list of unending chores. We expect God to cater to our every whim. When we make the gospel simply about personal salvation, we present a docile and domesticated God, a God who is on a leash and can only go as far as the leash will allow him. When we reduce the gospel to personal salvation, we confuse cause with effect. We mistake the fruit for the tree. When we reduce the gospel to personal salvation, we reduce a harvest of the decided. We, we produce a harvest of the decided at great cost to the discipled, and we believe in a result rather than a person. The gospel is not about personal salvation or sin management. If anything, these are the results of the cross. The gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, which starts with creation and ends with consummation. The gospel is the whole story of Jesus from heaven to heaven, not just one week in his life where he died and rose again. The true gospel is about a king and his kingdom and how that king came to reclaim his throne and to defeat his enemies. The true gospel looks at the entire scope of history as we know it and interprets it against the backdrop of a king reclaiming his throne and defeating his enemies. The true gospel calls each and every person to remove themselves from the center and find their place in reverential and worshipful orbits around the throne of King Jesus. Jesus didn't come to save us from our sins he came to defeat his enemies, to reclaim his kingdom, to sit on a throne. And as a byproduct of this, we are saved from our sins. When Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, who they say he is, Simon Peter answered and he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Messiah is a word for a very, very important king. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus does save us from our sins. But he does it by defeating his enemies, our enemies. Simon Peter didn't say, you are our savior. He didn't say, you take our sins away. He didn't say, you come and wash us white as snow. He said, you are the Messiah. And he can only come and take our sins away. He can only save us from our sins because he is first the Messiah.
And so this is a very dangerous trend within the church, in my opinion. You may disagree with me, but the self-absorbed, petulant Christianity that comes and produces vampire Christians that only want Jesus for a little bit of blood, that only come and are content to be comfy couch potato Christians that, that, that are only interested in the blessings of Jesus but resist the nature of Jesus. They are prepared to take the blessings of Jesus but not to take the nature of Jesus. And this is blasphemous. And it's turning and will turn the church into a little shop of horrors where believers are crying out, feed me, feed me, feed me, give me more. And so how should we read Matthew 28? We should read it in the context of kingdom, with a kingdom theology. Not kingdom of Steph or Kaz or of you, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so let's read Matthew 28, 16 again, as I try and bring this into land, where it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now I want to ask you, in this moment here, he's speaking to the disciples, not the apostles. Do you consider yourself a disciple? If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, then you are a disciple. And as he speaks to these 11 disciples back then, it is an echo to us today where he comes and speaks to you and you and you and you and you not just the 11 chosen few but to those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christians he speaks to us now to the 11 disciples he comes and he saw that some worshipped him and some doubted and Jesus said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me what we need to understand is that these are the last, last five verses of this book. And so if you're writing a story, what do you do? If you're writing a, a scientific paper, what do you do? You come and you use your last words to bring it to a close. It's your executive summary. It's your, it's your abstract. It's, it's your summarizing everything. And he's coming and he's summarizing it right here. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who can make that kind of statement? In all the ages, throughout the earth, there have been kings and queens. And at their best, maybe one or two of them could come and say, all authority in the known world is given to me. All authority from India to Spain has been given to me. But none of them could say all authority on the entire earth, let alone heaven, has been given to me. This is the statement of either a madman or the Messiah. And what Matthew has argued for through the course of the previous 27 and a half chapters is that Jesus is the Messiah, the King that has come. But not to come and establish a kingdom that is merely limited to a geographical region in the Middle East with an enemy that would pass away in 400 years' time, that would not be no more. But he comes and argues for a kingdom that stretches from one side of the universe to the other side of the universe, that includes that which is seen and unseen and includes not just 
the earth, but also this tiny little region that they were fighting over and contending for, whose enemies wouldn't just pass away, but were the eternal enemies of sin and death and Satan himself. He's arguing that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah who comes and defeats that enemy, and he comes and establishes an eternal kingdom, like the promise to David all those years ago, an eternal kingdom. And so this is the voice of the Messiah, speaking to the 11 disciples and to us as disciples today, where he says, he's not a madman, he's not a con, he is the Messiah, saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's only one person that can say that, and it be true of them. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And then he comes and he says to you, he says to you as a disciple, go therefore and make disciples. Isn't that wonderful? How do we come and establish the kingdom of heaven? Well, we see the rule and reign of the king not simply come and encroach geographical ground against a Roman emperor in a specific time, thousands of years ago, but we see the kingdom advance into the territory of human hearts where they don't simply come and continue as they were, but they come and fix the wrong of Adam and Eve. Because he says, Go and make disciples, therefore, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, to observe. What was the sin of Adam and Eve? It was to disobey. How is the kingdom of heaven established? Through obedience. Which brings us back to the High King of Heaven saying to his disciples then and now, go make disciples. What are you going to do? Are you going to obey? Or are you going to step back and let others come and do it? And so I want to suggest that Jesus didn't come to build the kingdom of Steph or Kaz or any of you. He came to build the kingdom of God. And that for the church to be on mission, they need to be building the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdoms of individualization or self-actualization, but the kingdom of God. And the way we do that is by going out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outer ends of the earth. And we present ourselves as witnesses in Jerusalem to those who are close to us and look like us. In Judea, to those who are a little bit further but still look like us and we can relate to. To Samaria, those who are different to us and far away from us, whether in geography or in culture, and to the outer ends of the earth, to those that are far away and look completely different to us. And so I want to applaud this church because I heard this morning about the work you guys did into Clittersville. Eh? Amazing. That is church on mission. And for me, that's maybe Jerusalem or Sorry, maybe that's Judea or Samaria going out into those areas. But all of us have to understand that mission 
isn't relegated to a select few that go out there, that every single day when you obey Jesus, you are on mission, and every single day when you step out your door to your neighbor, to your colleagues, to your friends, to your family, you are on mission. And I want to encourage you and endorse you. Whose kingdom are you building? This is the context of Matthew 28. It's not a gospel of personal salvation. It's a gospel of a king and his kingdom. And the glorious benefit, the glorious byproduct of the Messiah defeating sin and death as he comes and he rescues us from our sins. And so, whose kingdom are you building? Where do your best prayers go? To you or to others? To building your kingdom or to building God's kingdom? Where do your extra finances go? To you, building your kingdom, or building God's kingdom? I know these are hard words I'm saying, and I'm suffering under them myself now. Where does your extra time go? Building your kingdom, or God's kingdom? Where does your extra energy go? Building your kingdom, or God's kingdom? When we come and we catch Matthew 28, 16 to 20 in the correct context, we catch it into a space where we begin at cost to ourselves, just as Christ, as cost to himself, comes and builds the kingdom of heaven. And that's the context that we should be on mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, I thank you this morning for how patient and kind you are to us. And God, if I've said anything incorrect or wrong, I pray that you'd forgive me and you'd bring clarity around that. But if there have been things that you are wanting us to hear and to carry with us today, I pray that you would burden us with them and that the evidence of us having heard you would be in obedience to you to your word, and in a life adjusted and changed as a result of that. God, we know that your scripture goes on and it says, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And that is the word of Emmanuel, God with us. That as we come and, as cost to, at, and, as, and at cost to ourselves, we come and we give ourselves to the building of your kingdom, you promise to be there with us. And I pray for us this morning that, Lord God, as your word lands and as you convict us and as we come and make adjustments to come and align with you in building your kingdom, that you would be with us, that through your spirit you would come and empower us internally, find the courage and the strength to march forward and to partner with you in the ranks of your army, advancing your kingdom in the hearts of of the many that are out there. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.